Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. When it comes to visions of the way that technology will intersect with society in the future, Silicon Valley has a near monopoly. It's been nearly 30 years since Richard Barbrook and Andy Cameron published the essay The Californian Ideology, which they say naturalized and gave a, quote, technological proof to a libertarian political philosophy and therefore foreclosing on alternative futures, a faith that is, quote, made possible through a nearly universal belief in technological determinism. Now, the economic power of Silicon Valley has left its billionaire class fairly certain it is above reproach, unchecked and unchallenged, even as some of the biggest firms spawned there are locked in a staring contest with governments in Washington, Brussels, and beyond. To talk more about the ways in which Silicon Valley elites have captured so much of what people define as progress, and the pronouncements of some individuals who make wild promises about the abundant future that technology will supposedly deliver, I called up Dave Karp who's been thinking about these issues for some time. I'm Dave Karp. I'm an associate professor in the School of Media and Public Affairs at George Washington University. So Dave, just for the benefit of any of my listeners that may not know you, can you give a sort of just brief background on your line of research and your interest areas? I come out of political organizing. I spent about 15 years in various roles with the Sierra Club a big environmental organization that was back in the late 1990s through the early aughts. I was on the board from 2004 to 2010. Uh, That's also when I was in graduate school. And that means that I was in graduate school. I started graduate school as the Howard Dean campaign was going on and got intensely interested in how the internet was changing political organizing and organizations. There were groups like moveon.org that clearly were mattering an awful lot and doing similar things to the Sierra Club, but with new media, new technologies. That became the main focus of my research for the first decade in in the field. I wrote a book in 2012 called The Move-On Effect, which is about the new generation of political advocacy organizations. Um, Basically, how how are groups like moveon.org different from the Sierra Club and how are they similar? This month actually is a a decade since that book came out, so I believe I could get a reread. In 2016, I had a follow-up book, Analytic Activism, uh, which was looking at how this new generation of organizations use analytics and digital listening to come up with new tactics and strategies and engage their members in, in new ways and sort of what that all amounts to. That book came out a month after Trump was elected. And with academic publishing, I finished writing it in like, what, late 2015. Um, so when it came out, we were living in a very different world than I had been writing for. And that led me to spend a lot of time thinking both about Trump and Trumpism, but also on the broader scale, how the internet and politics are changing. Uh, And that led to a project that I started in 2018, uh, where I decided to take a step back and I read the entire back catalog of Wired Magazine, 25 years of it, cover to cover over the course of that, actually just the course of just about six weeks, uh, in order to get a sense of the history of the digital future, or what what has our sense been of how the internet was changing society as it was coming, and what parts of that really changed and what parts stayed the same. Um, there's kind of a, an image of the digital horizon, the way the world is going to look differently five or 10 years from now. And wherever you are in time, if it's 1997 or 2007, 
there are some elements of what we think the world's going to be in five years that are always the same. That includes like apparently Elon Musk has promised us self-driving cars in the next five years uh, and Mars in 10 years for over a decade now. Um, so I've been doing that project for a while now and sort of looking more broadly at uh, the history of the digital future. Though I'd say if your listeners know my name at all, it's actually probably because of that one time that I made fun of Brett Stevens. So there was that too. A brief moment of Twitter infamy. May you have yes. another. <laughs> um, so I, I want to talk about the future, how we think about the future. You recently gave a, a talk about this issue. Um, mm-hmm. I've been thinking a lot about it, about the ways in which you know, Silicon Valley has colonized our vision of the future, the way we think about what's next, not just technologically, but, you know, how we may organize ourselves politically, what type of society we want. What did you learn from that review of Wired and where did it leave you on the question of the future? For me, one of the really interesting things in the history of the Digital Future Project is the way it's gotten weirdly current. So when I was doing that in 2018, It was fascinating seeing the rate of digital change in the 1990s and the early 2000s. And then what I've called the the slowdown of internet time in the 2010s. So really, like if you go from 1993 to 1996, it's a fundamentally different internet. 1996 to 1999, 99 to 20, like you, you take three or five year slices and the way that we access the internet, what we do on the internet, what we do with it, how it affects the rest of society, who the big companies are, all of that is in constant flux in the 90s and the 2000s. That's being described back then as internet time. It's related to this concept called Moore's Law, which is from Gordon Moore in 1965, saying the number of transistors you'll fit on a silicon ship is going to double every two years and the price will be cut in half. And there's almost this sort of like religious confidence amongst Silicon Valley and its evangelists that the pace of internet time makes the internet different from everything else in society. And it is transforming society. It's transforming the economy. And for 10, 15 years, there's a sense in which they're right. Like they're not entirely right. And there's a political project there because when they're saying internet time is different, what they're also saying is don't regulate us because you don't understand us. And how could you? We're changing too fast. But there is also an empirical sense where if you're setting the policies for the internet in 2001, you're setting policies that aren't going to make sense once Wi-Fi is becoming a real thing in 03 and 04. Like the pace of change is just really fast. But roughly after the iPhone, so it's go from like 2008 to 2010, what you see in the magazine is They keep making the same pronouncements about this oncoming radical change to the digital future, but they don't arrive. And what we've seen over the past decade, partially because you get the rise of these big tech monopolies where instead of Facebook getting displaced, Facebook just buys up the competitor. So that's part of what's going on there. Um, But some of it is also just like after the iPhone, we haven't really had major breakthrough devices that end up mattering at the mass consumer level. So like the the big predictions that are going on, you know, there's, you know, if you're looking at 2011, Bitcoin has already been around for a couple of years. They're talking about how this might be the future. Now it's 2022 and they're saying this might be the future. Um, They're talking about 3D printing. 3D printing still seems really cool, but it's been over a decade and it's still this niche activity. Um, Wearable devices are another one. Like remember Google Glass, we, we keep on getting more wearables that are supposed to do that. 
And none of it has paid off the way it was in the, the decades previously. So when I was first doing the project, that slowdown of internet time seemed to me to be the most pertinent thing going on that I didn't expect. But that was 2018. So that's also sort of midway through the tech lash. And what's gotten interesting in the past year is the evangelists and the entrepreneurs of Silicon Valley have clearly gotten excited about the future again. They have decided that I think what's largely going on, I don't think there have been major tech breakthroughs. Like I think that if you look at cryptocurrency and, and blockchain, there hasn't been a major breakthrough in the past couple of years. Artificial general intelligence, there's been, you know, they, they've hit some benchmarks, but actually the, the science is fundamentally the same as it's been. Uh, if you look at the metaverse, like they've been promising breakthroughs in VR and AR since at least 2016. So I, I don't think the reason why they're now talking about the future so much is because some breakthrough has happened that's going to really matter. I think they're talking about the future because they've gotten real tired of being blamed for the present. Big tech now dominates the economy in a way that it didn't in the 1990s or the 2000s. You know, the largest companies and the richest human beings in the world are all part of techn- are, are all technologists. I was uh, reading something yesterday. Apparently, Elon Musk's wealth went up tenfold during the pandemic. He had like 20 to 30 billion at the beginning of the pandemic, and now he's got 220 to 270 billion. So the extent to which big tech now dominates everything means we also socially hold big tech responsible for the present. And that that's not fun because the present is a dystopia. And so they've they've gotten excited in a way that's very reminiscent of the start of web 2.0, which is 2004-ish. That's after the dot-com crash, uh, when venture capitalists are just not seeing a lot to be excited about. And Web 2.0 is looking at Wikipedia, it's looking at the blogosphere, uh, by 05 is looking at YouTube, and it's saying, you know, there's new things happening here, let's get excited about, let's get excited about the future again. And they've been trying over the past year to do that. So they sound very similar to the Web 1.0, like the start of the dot-com era, Netscape in 95, they're sounding a lot like Web 2.0, circa 2005. But there's no real tech breakthroughs. The, the talk that I gave recently, and it's going to be a, a piece that I'm writing as well, is about these three visions of the future that I'm seeing Silicon Valley constantly orbit, orbiting around. So there's a vision of the future that says it's going to be the metaverse. This is Mark Zuckerberg is the person saying it uh, most loudly. I wrote a piece for Wired last summer, essentially arguing that the, the metaverse has a problem and it's a user end problem. They're building this vision of augmented reality or an immersive uh, technology that users don't seem to want. They've been promising breakthroughs in VR gaming for years and years now. The biggest VR game is basically Guitar Hero, but in VR. And I've played it once. It's pretty cool, but like you get kind of bored of it. It's still nowhere near as big as Guitar Hero or Rock Band were a bunch of years ago. Like VR gaming is real fun for the people who are into it, but it has been nowhere near as powerful. It's, it's, It's still not the most popular games. So it, it seems to me that VR has kind of a, uh, and, and the metaverse have what I call a, a filled of dreams fallacy problem, that they're assuming if they build it, that people will show up. They've been doing that for a long time. People keep on buying these headsets and then putting them down because they don't particularly want it. That's a vision of the tech future that I, I don't really think is going to happen. I mean, I guess, you know, somebody might come back to you and say, well, what about, what about games? You know, the 3D yeah. environments that people are engaging in on the game side of it. We've never seen more people participate in things like Fortnite. The, the pushback I would give on games, right now they are spending billions and billions to make millions. At some point, we need to judge 
virtual reality and augmented reality based not on their potential, but on their performance. This has been the, the big promise since at least 2016, that, that they've thought that Oculus, which is now Meta, was going to transform gaming. And so far, what we're seeing is gaming still as a real niche product. The most popular games are not VR games, even though VR gaming has been around for a long time. Now, I, I think the, the big VR supporters, certainly when that piece came out in Wired last summer, the big VR supporters said, you don't know what you're talking about. It's still too soon. And they could be right. It's entirely possible that a decade from now, I'm going to look like an idiot for making fun of VR and, and the metaverse. But I think it's more likely than not that in, in studying the history of the digital future, I got to look at VR in the 80s and the 90s. And I'll tell you, the way that they're talking about VR and the metaverse now sounds exactly like it did then. And, Absolutely. The original pioneers yeah, like right. John Lanier and, and others. Right. Yeah. Um, Brenda Laurel. I mean, like, they, so we've heard this story before. And going back to internet time, we've been hearing this story from them since at least 2016. So I, at some point, I think we have to ask the question, is VR in the metaverse not catching on because the headsets aren't quite fancy enough or, or polished enough or good enough yet? Uh, or because the games aren't good enough or because people just kind of don't really want it. And I think we have to at least consider the possibility that people don't really want it. But the, the other thing I want to point out here, right now there is this rush to build the metaverse and companies are sparing no cost to do that. So they are throwing money and investment and energy and attention into building that vision of the digital future. And I want us to hold that in our minds because there are these two other visions of the digital future. There's a vision of the digital future, which is not just artificial intelligence, but artificial general intelligence. Uh, a company called OpenAI has been the, the biggest promoter of this billionaire named Sam Altman, um, who's the head of OpenAI and has been pushing it for a long time. Uh, and Sam Altman, when you if you, you read his tweets or you, you read the essays that he's put out, he sounds like a 1990s techno-optimist just sort of ripped from time and placed with us today. OpenAI has come out with this large language model, GPT-3, which you can produce text that is hard to differentiate from what a human would write. They recently came out with uh, a visual version of that called DAL-E2, uh, where if you give it a description, you give it, I saw somebody on Twitter yesterday was showing off, like if they, they fed the description uh, Kermit the Frog, but in the matrix, and it can render a picture that looks like Kermit the Frog in the matrix. And on the one hand, it's pretty cool. On the other hand, those large language models are fantastically energy expensive. And so we're basically burning down our rainforest so that we can have a computer do our drawing for us. What Sam Altman will tell us is that as we get closer and closer to artificial general intelligence, that's going to usher in this era of economic abundance that changes life for all humanity. And there again, he sounds exactly like the 1990s techno-optimists who were also completely wrong. And so let's also hold that second vision of the technological future in mind, this uh, artificial general intelligence with large language models and absurd processing power. And that then brings us to cryptocurrency, which includes Bitcoin and Web3 and Ethereum. And Bitcoin consumes more energy than Ethereum does. It's all insanely wasteful from an energy perspective. Right? Like at its core, blockchain is distributed databases. So we are taking control over databases, spreading it over computers to make it less efficient so you don't need to trust one institution. 
And what that means is whether you do it the Bitcoin way, which uh, is burning more energy than small countries, uh, or you do it through Ethereum or other tools that can be more efficient, but still really wasteful. That's a vision of the future, which says in order to get around the old institutions and replace them with new institutions, right? Like they're not actually getting rid of banks. They're replacing the, they're hoping to replace the old banks with new banks that are run by, uh, run on crypto and on blockchain. That in order to do that, they're also going to just burn processing power. And if you take those three visions of the future, the thing that stands out to me is there's a fourth vision of the future, which is one that takes seriously the climate crisis. We are being told by the IPCC that we have a decade or less to stave off catastrophic climate change. I'm an old environmentalist. I come out of the Sierra Club. We needed to make a lot more headway a decade ago than we have. And while we're seeing real advances in solar and some other markets, the technology is not advancing fast enough. The politics is not advancing fast enough. The the social changes that need to occur just aren't happening. What stands out to me is that there's a version of Silicon Valley. There's like tiny segments of Silicon Valley that are freaked out enough by the climate crisis that they are asking the question, what would an internet that helps us to adapt look like? But those are tiny pockets. And instead, the three big visions that we see coming out of Silicon Valley are all based in this pretend fantasy landscape where we still have all the like limitless energy to burn. AGI is the version of those three futures that I think has the most legitimate claim to some real breakthroughs. But they are also looking at the climate crisis and saying, hey, why don't we burn down a rainforest so we can have a computer do the drawing for us? The metaverse is going to be this, it is right now this race to see who can dominate the next version of the internet. That race is not going to be won by the company that manages to be uh, most energy efficient in its work. Like they are saying, what's the next advertising landscape? Let's be the Google or or the Facebook slash meta of that. And blockchain is a solution in search of a problem. And the one problem it's definitely not trying to solve is climate change. So as somebody who's who's studied the past 25, now almost 30 years of digital history, it's not just that we've had this slowdown over the past 10 years that I find the current technologists seem to be pretending it's not there, right? Like all of them are claiming that we're still living in internet time and everything's moving faster. And my question to them is, have you paid attention in the past decade or not? It strikes me that the current wave of internet futurists and, and internet evangelists aren't paying real attention to the things they got wrong last time. Because the original crop of them and the Web 2.0 crop of them were so confident that they were going to solve the world's problems through technology, so long as government and society just trusted them to be the heroes of the story. And they left out environmental collapse. They left out like political infighting. They, they left out actually dealing with the Nazis on social media. And it turns out that those problems get worse unless you deal with them. So the the thing that I've gotten more and more concerned about as somebody who took the long view and has ended up back here today is it seems like they are actively misremembering the lessons of the past, which means that they're going to repeat those mistakes when we don't have the time to people. Well, and part of that is, I assume, just the logic of capital, right? Um, you, yeah. you, you don't want to paint a negative picture of the future uh, because that's not good for 
investors, not good for people who are seeking a return primarily. Um, and we've talked on this podcast. My listeners will, of course, know Sam Altman, know about his pronouncements on the idea of abundance and how close that might be. I had Gary Marcus on recently and talked about you know, some of the questions that you're bringing up around AI and open AI and some of the large language models and the limitations to that approach to artificial intelligence. I don't know. One of the things that just occurs to me, and I mean, I, I, and the reason I could have resonated with some of the signals that I saw bouncing off your Twitter feed around this particular theme, earlier this year, I went to a conference in Miami, you know, and there were multiple tech executives there. They're part of it, but certainly a lot of enthusiasts for cryptocurrency. Miami has gone nuts for cryptocurrency. And I remember this one particular individual, um, you know, saying, you know, the decade ahead is going to be wildly disruptive. You think the last decade was disruptive. All we did was disrupt advertising. We're going to disrupt everything and no government can stop us. Um, And it's going to be extraordinary. And I was, I found myself standing in the back of the auditorium thinking, actually, this city will be underwater Mm -hmm. and we are more likely to see climate crisis, refugee crises, the movement of people like we've never seen before, you know, resource wars, uh, just extraordinary challenges over the next decade. And it's not just, you know, I feel like the IPCC, I feel like intelligence agencies are telling us this, um, various government assessments of potential catastrophe. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I, I think like you, I just, I find these pronouncements on potential abundance or somehow ushering in a, a new and, and more prosperous set of human institutions that will replace the failed institutions of the present. I find it all totally preposterous. So yes, and. The thing that, because this Wired project I now keep getting hung up on, is when that person in Miami's, Miami says, you think the past decade was disruptive, I want to jump up and down shouting, no, I don't. Look at the data. Now, part of this is because in 2012, I very much believed that based on what I had seen in, from 1993 through 2012. So I, I wrote a piece in 2012 called Social Science Research Methods in Internet Time, that tried to lay out for other academics the methodological challenge of studying the internet when the internet keeps changing. And one thing that I said in there was, you know, the internet of 2012 is radically different from the internet of uh, 2007 or 2002. The same will surely be true of the internet of 2022. And this past year, I've been looking back at that and thinking, you know, the internet of 2012 was what Apple, Google, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, which is owned by Google. The internet of 22, oh, at Amazon, the internet of 2022 is all of those plus TikTok. If we could go back in time, I wrote about this for Substack, kind of think back in January, February, but if we could go back in time to 2012 and tell our 2012 selves, here's how little the internet has changed. I know I would have found it shocking that so little had changed. And if we had followed that up by saying, oh, by the way, Donald Trump is somehow going to be president and it's going to go exactly as bad as you fear. And then his supporters are going to try to overthrow the government, and none of the people who coordinate it are going to face any uh, uh, any blowback because Republicans are just going to support it. I would have said, "Okay, you lost me at Donald Trump getting elected president. Come on, what are you talking about?" So, internet time is slowing down while our political institutions, political time, like that's where we're seeing these radical changes now. 
not because of the internet, accelerated by, by uh, digital technologies, but not because of them. But I mean, really for a technologist today to say, you think the last decade was disruptive. No, I don't. And if he thinks that, then what that means is he's enough of an abundance and Moore's law ideologue that he's not even paying attention to the past decade of life on the internet. It, it's not. So that raises this question of what's the next decade going to be? And if we're not members of the church of Moore's law, if we're not starting out saying, of course, we'll keep on getting radically different and disrupting everything, but instead we say, okay, let's look at the past decade, think about the next decade. That's when we start need to be, need to think, need to be thinking not about disruption, but about fragility. Right. So like the old disruptors, if you look back at web 2.0, either became monopolists or we found out how fragile they were. And moving forward, and we've also been finding just how fragile the existing institutions are, like what little holds up democracy. So looking for the next decade, I'm not sure we have free and fair elections in the United States. I will be pleasantly surprised if we manage any national or global serious response to climate change. Like, hell, we're a country that over the past decade hasn't been able to get guns out of elementary schools. How are we going to deal with climate when that's actually about getting ourselves off of the carbon economy. We don't do those big successful things anymore. So I, I think we need to prepare ourselves for the notion that if we don't plan for it and try to respond collectively, that things will be similar but worse in a decade because we'll be responding to crumbling things as opposed to still getting to run along the path of internet time, making things different and new and everyone can get rich off of it if they can just get it on the ground floor. I think empirically that time has just passed us. You use a phrase, tech accelerationists. Um, mm-hmm. I, and I think, I think of these people as, as uh, tech accelerationists. I would also say, you know, there's a kind of model of venture accelerationists um, mm-hmm. that we, we see now in Silicon Valley. And I guess part of, and I'm, I'm kind of maybe slightly out over my skis here talking about this, but part of the sense I'm getting from some of the individuals, particularly those who are so enthusiastic about uh, cryptocurrency, but also the kind of Peter Thiel world of things, is you know this sort of sense that you know government, full stop, has stood in the way of the progress that we need to make on technology mm-hmm. in order to deliver this realm of abundance. And mm-hmm. so the best thing we can do is uh, you know take down those institutions undermine any any kind of impediment or obstacle institution that might stand in the way and that you know we need more capital allocated to these big problems so in some ways they're kind of answering your question they 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 know that there's big big issues big things that we have to do to to solve for the future but their sense is you know everyone else needs to get out of the way and allow mm-hmm. the individuals who know how to usher in innovation and tech to lead and if you don't do that, you know, we'll take that power, right? So, you, you know, and you see this kind of the sort of Trumpian populism and sort of the venture accelerationists sort of mm-hmm. flowing in this tributaries flowing into the same river of activity at this point. I want to separate out tech accelerationism and venture accelerationism, because the thing that I'm unsure about with venture, like genuinely unsure keep on reading and scratching my head around it is how much they believe their own bullshit, right? Like the, the venture capitalists who valued 
uh, clubhouse at $4 billion. From my perspective, those are total idiots. And I would assume that they lost all their money and no one takes them seriously anymore. It's possible that that was a bad bet, but actually somehow they got their money back at, uh, like back out of it. I, I've read in a bunch of places that the thing that venture capital likes so much about cryptocurrency and ICOs is that they can make their bets and make, uh, and make their money back right away. So that there's really no risk to them. There's only potential reward. So like they, they've turned enough of the economy into sort of a weird casino where they're the house that it, it's not clear to me how much they are genuinely espousing a philosophy of here's how the world works and how much they're just trying to get more suckers into the casino. Like that, that's not a, a defense of them so much as I don't know, I don't quite know what to make of their language there. Whereas the, the tech accelerationist language mostly reads more pure to me. Now it reads pure to me in the sense of these are a bunch of rich entrepreneurs, evangelists, and technologists who are trying to explain why the power they have is, is justified and should increase. But like I, I think that in their story of self for why do they deserve to be the the you know moral victors of the universe, I think they genuinely believe it's because of the Church of Moore's Law, because of tech accelerationism, like because they are the ones who are marshaling marshaling society in some, into some big new future. So that's to say, like when Sam Altman is going on about that stuff, I think we need to take him both seriously and pretty literally. And when venture capital is explaining why you know X is is you know the best bet and is undervalued right now, I think they might be kind of bullshitting because claiming that something is is undervalued or is going to be the future is a good way to to prop it up. Again, I'm, I'm reading the Contrarian, the the biography of Peter Thiel right now. An awful lot of of his successes came through sort of carnival Barker antics. Same is true for Elon Musk. Same is true for a lot of them of convincing people that something is real so that they can get the money to make it real. But yeah, amongst the tech accelerationists, again, this goes back that there's such a, a deep through line of this to '90s Wired. If you read the first issue of Wired magazine, uh, where uh, Louis Rossetto proclaimed that we were uh, in the midst of a Bengali typhoon and it was going to be the, the biggest change since the invention of fire. He also lays out in that a pretty simple map of who he thinks the heroes and the villains are. And he says that the, the entrepreneurs and the engineers, those are the heroes who are building a modern society and the people who are staying in the way are the government bureaucrats. And that's sort of this sort of like guy who read Ayn Rand and shaped his worldview through that and didn't think much harder beyond that way of seeing the world, which I think I think is pretty true of Rosetto from what I've read of him. And I think is true of an awful lot of the 90s technologists and also true of a lot of that crowd today. Like the, there is something very appealing of the Ayn Rand, you know, the builders are the ones who are creating are creating the better world. The the government and the incumbent institutions are the ones who are in the way. So you are the heroes, you are justified. Like it's a very simple moral story in which a bunch of rich Silicon Valley people also get to be the heroes and never blamed for anything. And yeah, I think that the fact that they've acquired so much capital leads to this self-reinforcing dynamic of we got to explain why it's right that I'm a billionaire uh, and why it's you know right for nobody to, to hold me accountable for anything that I got wrong or lied about along the way. My basic answer to this is like, hey, let's have a wealth tax and like a functioning regulatory state, um, you know, like give me a magic wand and I want those two things. But lacking that magic wand, wand, what I can mostly do is 
write strong critiques of them and point out that your performance, like, like our actual recent history doesn't live up to any of your claims. And that also means we should be pretty skeptical of them this time too. So the Californian ideology um, right. is classic, perhaps impervious at this point. Um, you know, I, I, I guess I, what I wonder too, as well, I mean, obviously I focus on uh, policy questions, the extent to which this tech accelerationism uh, on some level has infected the minds of lawmakers, policymakers, um, you know, even at hearings where, you know, putatively the purpose is to hold tech executives to account, you'll often find lawmakers on both sides of the aisle starting their questions with, a, a, you know, a first a kind of statement of let's all remember, you know, what great promise the internet has brought to us and what extraordinary things uh, Silicon Valley has done for us. Uh, before we, you know, now launch into uh, a series of pointed questions about things that have gone wrong. You know, I don't know, do you hold any hope that in the current situation that anybody will be able to pierce the Californian ideology? A a very little. Um, And what I would say- David's everywhere. (laughs) David's everywhere, right? It's in every culture, every part of the planet. Everyone wants to have their own Silicon Valley. Everyone wants Silicon Valley style venture capital. Everyone wants clusters. Everyone wants that mode of the future. We're they, almost they do that, that. So that I don't think that's actually the problem. I think the problem is we have so little regulatory state capacity now that I mean, I mean, like, look again. The way to fix this is a combination of a regulatory state, which I mean, like Europe has a better one than we do. They're They've got real laws that they're passing uh, through multilateral commissions of multiple countries. We could do that too. We would just need, like, give Lena Khan eight years in the FTC and a court system that doesn't have a bunch of ideologues that are just going to try to strike her down because they read Anrian too. Like, give her that and we could get there. Um, But that's actually from where we are really hard. Give us a wealth tax so that Silicon Valley is full of multi-millionaires rather than hundred billionaires. And the Californian ideology becomes a lot less powerful. Like the reason why it's so powerful is just because so much economic power is now concentrated there. But that that's not a natural state of things. That's a, a set of policy that, that that's the result of a set of policy choices. Now how do we back out of those policy choices in the narrow band of time that we have before Democracy gets undermined and climate makes every single thing more dangerous and worse. I'm a big worrier. I'm very worried. And that's the reason why some of the work that I've been doing recently, like this this lecture that I gave about the four futures of the internet, the point of that is actually to sort of call on the segments of Silicon Valley that have decided we ought to take climate seriously and encourage them to, to push a little harder. Now, that's kind of pleading with our wealthy tech benefactors to please help. That, that's all to say, I don't think it's that the Californian ideology is so potent that it can't be undermined. Like the thing that makes it potent is it, it's very appealing to boomers and they still have a lot of capital. And it's also just a, a nice, simple story of how like the version of scientists that you read about in Isaac Asimov novels are, are the ones who can go and save the world. In an increasingly complicated, dire world, it's a compelling story to believe that the version of Elon Musk that he wants us to envision 
is going to be tinkering in a lab and is going to make us an interplanetary uh, species that solves climate. Um, Sam Altman, you may have covered this in the show before, like Sam Altman has decided that the solution to climate change is cold fusion. There's maybe like a 0.1% chance that cold fusion works out. And if so, that would make a big difference. But if your only solution to climate change is that we're finally magically going to have a breakthrough on a technology that, or on a scientific breakthrough that an awful lot of very good scientists have concluded there's just no there there, there's something helpless about that. Or there's at least something about like, you know, trying to, you know, tech magic your way out of things instead of doing the hard socio-political work that probably really needs to be done. Um, so I, I don't think it's that the California ideology is is intellectually so potent that it can't be out-argued uh, or it's just kind of too many adherents. It's just that when you don't have enough, a functional regulatory state and the people who have benefited from that now have all of the money and therefore everyone else is looking at them saying, I guess that's the only pathway to success. Like digging out of that is really hard, particularly when you've got a ticking clock. But that's that's not because of the ideology. That's because of just all the other ways over the past 25 years we've fucked up to get to this point. It's very possible to me to imagine this kind of tech pipe that we're laying, no matter what we do with each of these four futures you described, um, as just propping up some authoritarian society. You know, Mark Zuckerberg will tell you that tech should be part of the solution when it comes to solving democracy's problems, I don't. I don't know if, on balance, that I um, uh, I see it trending in that direction at the moment. That uh, tech has become kind of more of a kind of anti-democratic uh, force than a pro-democratic one, um, mm-hmm. and it's hard to imagine how to kind of retrieve that. So I I come out of the environmental movement. Environmentalists historically are the only people predicting the future who would like to be wrong. And the, the thing that took me as a scholar from environmentalism and political organizing to studying the history of tech is if I am right about the state and trajectory of the country and the world, then there is very little hope. And also, I'm often wrong. And the place where I am most frequently wrong is about developments in technology and how it interacts with society and politics. Like I started studying Move On and the, and the Dean campaign because when those when I saw what a big deal they were, it was a surprise to me. I didn't understand it. That was a way that I was wrong about politics. When, when I wrote the book Analytic Activism, it was because I saw how those organizations were using data to make decisions. And that was different from how I understood the world. So I wanted to go and investigate. So I am a pessimist with you in that when I look at the role of, society, of technology in politics and society right now, we're in real bad shape and I don't see how it gets better. And also as an old environmentalist, I'm the only, one of the only people predicting the future who would like to be wrong. So the, the hope is that the world 10 years from now, well, I, I am confident that the world 10 years from now will include a bunch of things that I don't see coming. And they aren't set in stone. We can help to nudge them and shape them. So can technology help to solve these problems? Yeah. Will technology help to shape these problems if it is being guided by a bunch of Peter Thiel acolytes? No. So we need different people to be driving this, making different decisions along the way. Because if the world is going to keep on changing in ways that we can't see, along with ways that we can see, then we need to hope that we come up with some angles that make things different in a good way. 
right now things keep breaking in the you know in a bad way if that keeps on happening then we're headed for a full dystopia but i'm not confident that we're going to get to a full dystopia because there's so much that i don't know yet there's so much that i can't be wrong about so i think as pessimists we want to look for the things that we can be wrong about because that weirdly enough is where our hope should come from are there one or two or three things that you think um, if I'm wrong about this, then then perhaps that will restore my hope. I mean, there's fundamental technologies again. Like, if I'm wrong about cold fusion, which like, like I don't specialize in cold fusion, it just like it sounds ridiculous to me. Like, show me that I'm wrong in some fundamental technology that is going to matter for markets and politics and everything else. Like, just be a game changer. That would give me hope. Right now, I'm very pessimistic because I think both tech elites and political elites have learned that they can be unscrupulous without facing any consequences. I'm working on a piece right now unrelated to what we've been talking about uh, for an edited volume on preventing the next January 6th. And the main point that I'm making in that is if you want to prevent the next January 6th, there need to be consequences, not just for the people who participate in the insurrection, but also the elites that spread viral lies because it was profitable. Because if if there's no consequences for the elites, then we guarantee a next one. Right now, I expect that there's basically no consequences for that. If I'm wrong about that, if they are held to account either socially or or politically or legally, if there are big consequences for that crowd that end up sending a message that there actually are boundaries, that would give me a lot of hope because I just don't ever see it happening. I'm with you there. Of course, I spent a lot of time thinking about January 6th for the same reason that it seems like Mm -hmm. it should be a final backstop. Uh, to this sort of just culture of, of corruption and, um, as you say, kind of unaccount- you know, unaccountable uh, exercise of power. So we'll see. I and mean, we've got a couple of weeks of hearings in front of us, and we'll see what happens through the remainder of the summer. Yeah. I feel like one of the refrains that I always have on my depressing Twitter account is there is no bottom. The thing that would give us hope, would give me hope, is if we actually reach reach a point where it's clear we have reached bottom and things go up from there. There has to be a bottom somewhere, but if, if and when we reach it and we see, okay, now things really do turn, that'll give me a lot of hope. Well, Dave, I hope I'll get the chance to bring you back on when we can point to the upward pointy arrow and be optimistic and uh, maybe wear some smiles. So thank you very much for talking to me today. Bring me back in better times. That sounds great. Absolutely. Cool. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to my guest. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.